My name is Chris Collier. I'm the executive director of Renew Theaters, which manages the Ambler Theater, County Theater, Highway Theater, and Princeton Garden. And we're really excited to have you back for another discussion of a classic Hollywood film, um, as always in the more than capable hands of Hannah Jack. Uh, we're excited tonight to be discussing Double Indemnity. And I think there's gonna be a lot of wonderful comments uh, to come out of this. Uh, before I turn things over to Hannah, just a couple housekeeping notes. Um, there are deep focus discussions going on all summer, and for those of you who can't get enough classic Hollywood uh, in pairing with our Hollywood Summer Night series going on at the theaters, we also have an, a couple additional um, classic Hollywood films coming up. Um, so Alan, who I just see has signed on, will be discussing uh, The Shop Around the Corner on Tuesday, August 2nd, um, so I do hope you'll join us for that. Um, and there are some other wonderful seminars uh, coming up all summer long, and you can find those on deepfocus.film. Of course, the whole Deep Focus series is uh, sponsored by the Vesta Fund, uh, which allows us to put these wonderful programs together and to have so many wonderful and interesting speakers uh, to share uh, these moments together to discuss film. Um, so in addition to the Classic Hollywood series, we're also wrapping up our French New Wave series. We are launching a new series on Black independent film. Um, and there is a, a fantastic series by the uh, team at Milestone Films uh, looking at um, forgotten films from their vault, uh, some really interesting silent titles. So. Uh, urge you to check out deepfocus.film and see all of the wonderful programs uh, that are going on there. Um, in terms of Zoom protocols, uh, we ask that you all please stay on mute, especially in the beginning um, as Hannah does her intro and then we'll open things up uh, for discussion. Uh, since this is a larger group, ask uh, if you use the raise hand feature and I will help moderate and call on people. Um, also, so that this feels like a round table, um, encourage all of you to turn your cameras on so that we can see you. Um, it is much nicer to see faces and it feels like, even though we're all in different places, like we're uh, in a circle together uh, chatting about films or in the theater even, um, instead of just looking at blank boxes. Um, and the chat is enabled. Um, the chat is always a wonderful place for sidebar conversation. There's always a lot of IMDb sleuthing going on and sharing of favorite quotes and other things in there. And that often gets pulled into the main conversation. So please uh, take good use of the chat. And uh, I look forward to seeing what comments come up. And I think without anything further, it is my pleasure as always to turn things over to Hannah Jack. Um, who's a writer for TCM and has been our guide through all of these classic films over the past two years. Um, and I think, Hannah, you might be talking about our next couple films because I think we have them finally lined up. So over to you, Hannah. Yes, thank you all so much uh, for being here. I'm thrilled to see uh, the crowd that has turned out, thrilled but not surprised, uh, to turn, who's turned out for uh, this discussion for Double Indemnity. Um, and I do want to reiterate Chris's invitation to uh, show us your faces. Don't worry about your background. Don't worry if you're cooking dinner. It's lovely to see everyone who's here. And we have uh, quite a big crowd who is here uh, tonight. Um, so as Chris said, I've been in the habit of uh, teasing next month's movie up front at the beginning of these talks so that you can mark your calendars. Um, it's such a, a joy and a, a privilege and a thrill for me to see so many of you returning month after month, and especially to see some new faces uh, each month too. So if you're new to this series, we do this every month uh, about a different classic Hollywood film, often based on your own requests uh, and suggestions. And um, we have picked out the next couple titles, but I will just mention next month's uh, right now on August 16th. That's another Tuesday at 730 we're going to be meeting to discuss a comedy. It's from 1950. And I've mentioned this before because if you were with us for Sunset Boulevard, uh, I said that the uh, performance Gloria Swanson gave as Norma Desmond in Sunset Boulevard was nominated for an Academy Award. She was up against Betty Davis for All About Eve. Neither of them won. The Oscar that year went to the only actress in the category who was nominated for a comedy. 
And that was Judy Holliday for the movie we'll be discussing, Born Yesterday from 1950. So this is really a special movie, um, a special uh, comedy, and it co-stars William Holden and Broderick Crawford and is directed by a director we somehow have managed to overlook so far in this series, George Cukor, who is one of the great directors of classic Hollywood. So we will be talking about Born Yesterday uh, on um, August 16th next month. Speaking of August, I just also want to note, because I know a lot of, there are a lot of Turner Classic Movies fans in the crowd, um, and uh, August is every year on TCM, a month that we call Summer Under the Stars, which is a 31-day marathon, where every day in August, TCM has dedicated to a different Hollywood star. So if you're looking to do kind of a deep dive into different stars' filmographies, there's no better opportunity than the month of August on TCN. Every year there are a couple of like perennial favorites who show up, who you know, you know their movies. And then there are always a few kind of surprise, um, you know, star of the day uh, 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 individuals who maybe don't get to be in the spotlight so much. So definitely check out the programming in August and set your DVRs. Um, that's very, very exciting. And I worked on a lot of movies for that lineup. Um, so without further ado, I'm going to dive into tonight's film. Um, and I am going to go ahead and share my screen and share some images as I'm talking. As always, fill the chat with your thoughts and your questions. And once I'm done talking, we will open this up because there's a lot to say about this movie. Before I begin, special shout out to Brian's t-shirt, which I see here. Way to wear a Barbara Stanwyck shirt. There we go. Excellent. Um, and uh, that is uh, from our dear friend, KateGabrielle.com. If you go to her website, you can buy that shirt. It's a great shirt. Um, so I'm gonna go ahead and try to share my screen with you here um, so we can see some visuals. Give me one moment and uh, here we go. Thumbs up if we see these two scandalous people, great. Um, so sometimes in this series, and I, I want to apologize in advance, I have this like weird shade light on my face, but I feel like for this movie, that's very appropriate. The, the Venetian blind light kind of hitting me in this way. So I'm going to try to stay out of it. But um, every once in a while, I get the opportunity to uh, talk about a movie here that really and truly changed the course of movie history. And this is one of them. Double Indemnity um, is a movie that our TCM host, uh, Eddie Muller, who has been called the czar of noir, he is the you know, foremost expert on film noir. Eddie Muller has called this the definitive film noir. Not the first film noir, but really the one that opened the floodgates for the genre and the era, the classic era that we think of as film noir. And I'll, I'll circle back to that idea at the end and kind of explain how that happened. But before we get there, I, I wanna kind of give some production history and background as, as I tend to do here. Um, I'll start with the story, the source material for this movie. It was written by a man named James M. Kane, whose name you might know. He, uh, back in 1934, now remember, Double Indemnity is 1944, so a decade earlier, James M. Cain was a, an aspiring screenwriter, a former newspaper man who wrote a small little book that turned out to be a bestseller. It was a story about an adulterous woman who gets her lover to help her commit murder. And it was called, not double indemnity, it was called The Postman Always Rings Twice. Um, and that book was published in 1934 and it became a surprise bestseller. Now, MGM quickly bought the rights to this book. But if you've been with us recently, we've been talking a lot about the Hollywood Production Code. And 1934 was the year that that code went into full effect. So there was never any hope of a scandalous book about sex and adultery and murder um, being made into a movie in 1934. This wasn't going to happen. Meantime, James M. Cain is writing more stories, and he rehashes essentially the same story uh, two years later in another small book called Double Indemnity. That it was written in 1936, but not published until 1943, takes us very close to our movie. 1943, Double Indemnity is published in a group of three stories by James M. Cain, 
in this uh, volume that you see on the right there called Three of a Kind. And that's where our movie starts to get underway. So 1943, a producer at Paramount named Joe Sistrom gets his hands on a copy of Three of a Kind and he gives it to the studio's hottest new director, Billy Wilder. Not the first time we've talked about Billy Wilder in this series, nor will it be the last time. Billy Wilder uh, was one of the, you know, greats in Hollywood, in classic Hollywood, at the, especially at this point. Billy Wilder uh, had been, we, when last we spoke about him in this series, it was with Ninochka when he was just still a screenwriter. Started out as a screenwriter, was a very, very acclaimed screenwriter, mostly of comedies in the 1930s and early 40s. Um, and had just stepped into the director's chair in 1942, directed his first movie, The Major and the Minor, which was a comedy, and then followed it with a war movie called Five Graves to Cairo, and that's it. He had not directed anything else before Double Indemnity. He only made two movies before this movie, which blows my mind, but um, he had two directorial credits, and they were both hits, and he was Paramount's hottest director, so into his hands fell this book. Legend has it that he gave it to his secretary to read these three stories by James M. Cain and she disappeared and everyone was looking for her and she was in the bathroom. She couldn't stop reading this one book, this one story, Double Indemnity. And Billy Wilder figured, well, if she was that enthralled by it, it must be good. And he read it and was excited. Well, Billy Wilder, as I said, was known for making these comedies, but he had other aspirations. What he really wanted to do was make a thriller to rival his contemporary Hollywood immigrant, Alfred Hitchcock. He wanted to make a Hitchcock-like movie. And uh, when he read Double Indemnity, he was sold. Unfortunately for Billy Wilder, his writing partner, Charles Brackett, was not sold at all. On the left-hand side there, you see uh, Billy Wilder and Charles Brackett. They uh, came up together as screenwriters. They were a really good uh, kind of blend. And uh, Charles Brackett, they were very different kinds of people. Billy Wilder was this like crass German immigrant uh, who had all these, you know, he was in tune with like the baser impulses of, of human beings. Charles Brackett was this very refined sophisticated, well-educated Boston blue blood. And when he read James M. Cain's sordid little tale of sex and murder, he wanted nothing to do with it. He did not want his name on this at all. So he parted ways with Wilder for this project. And Billy Wilder, that didn't really work well for him because what he needed was a writing partner. His process very much involved, as you can infer from this picture, him walking up and down his office and you know, swishing his riding crop around and shouting ideas, and he needed someone to bounce ideas off of. Well, so producer Joe Sistrom suggested another writer whose crime stories he really liked, and this was a man named Raymond Chandler. Raymond Chandler was famous for writing detective stories uh, focused on the famous literary detective, Philip Marlowe, Book, uh, stories like The Big Sleep, and Farewell My Lovely, which all got made into great Hollywood movies. Raymond Chandler uh, had never written a screenplay though. He was also a struggling alcoholic and he and Billy Wilder hated each other from the minute they got together. They, their collaboration was just fraught with tension because they just didn't, they were two very different personalities who did not have anything like a similar working style. And um, they really didn't, it was not it was not a partnership that was happy at any point however in seven weeks they wrote a screenplay together that revolutionized uh the movie industry and basically they introduced something that really was new which was a story where the main characters are totally unsympathetic they are cold they are calculating they're driven by lust and greed and they just had this moral apathy that was unlike anything Hollywood had seen before in a big prestigious picture. It blended these qualities that these two men had somehow blended together beautifully. Billy Wilder's cynical attitude, which comes through even in his comedies and his dark sense of humor. And then Raymond Chandler had just such an ear for hard boiled dialogue. And so together they created this really, really great script 
which was the entire basis of this movie. Kind of everything you love about Double Indemnity was in the script that, that they created. Um, they parted the worst of enemies, and yet Billy Wilder did acknowledge Raymond Chandler's contributions to this movie with a cameo. So next time you watch, you can find Raymond Chandler in the movie. Uh, he's sitting on a chair outside of Barton Keyes' office at one moment. Um, so look for him next time. Um, and then the other kind of stroke of genius behind this film was Billy Wilder's casting choices, which really the, the genius lies with Wilder in this one. He uh, chose to cast as murderers two actors who were beloved for playing romantic and light comic characters. The first was Barbara Stanwyck. Barbara Stanwyck um, was, she had just a ridiculously long career. I mean, rightfully so. She was one of the greatest actresses of her time, but she uh, had already starred in 43 movies at this point and yet had never played what she called an out and out killer. This was a departure for her. She had played kind of, she had played tough roles before, but never someone who was this evil. Um, and that scared her and she was hesitant. She was Wilder's first choice for Phyllis Dietrichson, but she hesitated um, because she thought that it would alienate her fans. She thought that this was not a role that would endear her to anybody, um, but she wanted to work with Wilder and he apparently uh, challenged her the, in just the right way by saying, well, are you an actress or are you a mouse? And she said, well, I hope I'm an actress. And she took the part and it was, it was a risk that more than paid off because nowadays uh, it's regarded as one of her best roles and certainly one that most people think of when they think of Stanwyck's career. Um, and then yet casting the role of Walter Neff proved to be a lot more challenging. Um, a couple actors were considered. Alan Ladd was the first one that Billy Wilder approached. Uh, Alan Ladd, did have a, a pretty robust career in crime dramas, um, but he turned the part down. George Raft, who also was famous for playing gangsters in the movies, turned it down. George Raft sort of made a career turning down every big role in Hollywood. He turned down The Maltese Falcon, he turned down Casablanca, um, and he turned down Double Indemnity. He apparently said to Wilder, he heard Wilder kind of recount the plot of this movie. And at the end, he said, well, where's the lapel? And Wilder said, what lapel? And he said, well, wh at what point does, does the character like flip over his lapel and show his FBI badge that he was the good guy all along? And Wilder said, well, that doesn't happen. And J Raft said, well, no, forget that. He would not play a character who was just that bad. Um, and so Wilder turned to somebody who had not ever played any character who was sort of, you know, corrupt. And that was Fred McMurray. Fred McMurray was uh, his own, by his own like response to the offer, he said, I'm a saxophone player, which he was. He started off playing saxophone in a big band. And he said, I make romantic comedies with Carol Lombard, which he also was, that's what he was famous for. He was famous for playing these, you know, light kind of playboy types in romantic comedies. Um, at this point in his career. Always likable characters. He also had starred opposite Barbara Stanwyck once before uh, in a movie that many of you may have seen. Uh, it's a classic Christmas classic that plays every year called Remember the Night um, from 1940, which is also, again, it's a charming romance. It's not anything dark or sinister. Um, but Fred McMurray did take on the challenge and really showed his acting chops in a way that no other role before this had, had allowed him to. Um, and he, again, would go on to play a thoroughly unlikable guy 16 years later in his next collaboration with Billy Wilder, which was The Apartment. He is uh, Mr. Sheldrake, the, uh, you know, the, the executive who uses Jack Lemmon for his apartment to have an affair with Shirley MacLaine. And when he made the apartment in 1960, the fan mail poured in chastising Fred McMurray for playing such an unlikable guy. And I guess people just forgot that he had played such an unlikable guy in an earlier Billy Wilder movie. Um, 
So then, of course, we have to talk about the third star of this movie, who is Edward G. Robinson. So Edward G. Robinson, at this point in his career, also uh, was known for a particular type. He was known for playing gangsters. That's a big misnomer, because when you look at his career, he played everything and did it all well. And he really had a range that was incredibly remarkable. But he, in 1930, kind of burst onto the screen in this gangster role in Little Caesar, which was one of the landmark early gangster movies. And that became the indelible image, I mean, in cartoons and everything ever since, uh, the number of homages to you know, the three-piece suit and the big cigar and the way that he talked, that was Edward G. Robinson. So he, um, he was a, a big star in his own right. Yet in 1944, he's 49 years old and he realized that at this point, uh, he, his career was moving more into character parts, not stars. Uh, and he was a little reluctant to step into this, but he knew that this was gonna be where his career was heading. So he accepted the part and really gave one of his best performances here as Barton Keyes. Interestingly, still kind of the villain of the picture and kind of the tough uh, you know, powerhouse, but on the right side of the law, not you know, the, the gangster that he was known for. Um, incredibly, he was not nominated for an Oscar for this performance and neither was Fred McMurray. And really more incredibly, I think, Robinson never was nominated for an Oscar in his career, which I think is a huge oversight, um, and neither was McMurray. But Double Indemnity did earn seven Oscar nominations. Uh, these are the seven. It was nominated for Best Picture. Stanwyck was nominated for Best Actress. Billy Wilder for both directing and co-writing the screenplay. He did not invite Raymond Chandler to the Oscars party, which Chandler always <laughs> resented. Um, but they were nominated together. John F. Seitz is the cinematographer here who worked with Billy Wilder a lot, including on Sunset Boulevard, which we talked about a couple months ago, and he was nominated for his cinematography. And this score but uh, was by Mikos Rosa, who had a very long and very successful career as a Hollywood composer, um, famously for Ben-Hur. He wrote the score that uh, won him the Oscar for Ben-Hur. That's, that's his music there. Now, as I said, they was nominated for seven Oscars, did not win any. All of the Oscars that year went to other movies and Billy Wilder the next year would win for both director and for his screenplay for another movie called The Lost Weekend, which was the first Hollywood movie to deal seriously with the topic of alcoholism. That was a movie about an alcoholic writer. And Billy Wilder wrote it after working with Raymond Chandler on Double Indemnity, who was, as I said, a struggling alcoholic. And that was what inspired The Lost Weekend, which came the following year. Double Indemnity lost most of its Oscars to the Bing Crosby musical Going My Way, which um, if you don't know that movie or don't remember it so well, that's because I think Double Indemnity kind of got the last laugh in the end because it's the one that had the bigger impact and really changed, as I said, the course of Hollywood history, um, opening the doors for the era and the genre that we think of as the, the peak of film noir. At the time, film noir was not the name given to these movies. They were called either melodramas or crime pictures um, because what they had in common was crime. Crime was kind of the common denominator of all of these movies. They are so varied though. So um, when we look, when we take a look at noir, you have everything from, you know, more romantic movies to heist movies to, uh, you know, boxing dramas. They kind of, they run a huge gamut, but um, what Double Indemnity did was it was a huge, huge success and commercially and critically. And that is what signaled to all the studios that audiences were ready for this. Um, prior to uh, the mid 1940s, Hollywood was really churning out very uplifting, sugar-coated uh, movies with happy endings, in part as a distraction from the depression, in part as a distraction from World War II, and really uh, because that was a formula that seemed to work in the 1930s and early 40s. But what happened was in, uh, you know, everyone, the war happened and then the soldiers returning from the war had seen a lot 
of terrible things and came back ready for movies that kind of looked at the world and said, you know what? There's a lot of terrible stuff in the world and took a more cynical um, approach to storytelling. And that's where you get the most robust period of noir, which is in the immediate aftermath of World War II. So again, Double Indemnity is 1944, and it, it signals to everyone in Hollywood, audiences are ready, audiences can handle it. If there's something you know, sordid and horrible going on on screen, they wanna see it. If it doesn't end well, they wanna see it. They're okay with it. And that's where you get this period of film noir. So that's where I'm gonna pause. And there's so much to talk about with this movie, with noir, with e e kind of everything involved. And I know that there are a lot of people here uh, who came here to talk about this movie. So I'm gonna kind of leave it open-ended. But um, if you would like to start by maybe commenting on the style of this movie, maybe some of the characters, what you thought of it, I will open it up and you can use the raise hand feature and Chris will uh, help moderate. Yes, Brian. Yeah, uh, I love this film. It was one of the first uh, film noirs I ever saw back in VHS. Uh, one of the interesting things is Howard Neff is not an innocent led to slaughter or led astray uh, by the woman. It's heavily suggested that he's a womanizer. He admits to having thought of ways to cheat the company. He just needs the littlest of push to push him onto the dark side. And once he does that and the murder's committed, he seems to really lose all interest in Phyllis. He just wants to get away with it. He's not even really that interested in the money, it seems. He, has, he never mentions what he's going to spend the money on or what elaborate plans he has. He's just happy to have done it. It's not until he sees what his act did to, his, to uh, Dietrich's uh, daughter and the fact that Phyllis might be leaving him for another man that he finally gets his moral compass back and uh by far my favorite scene of the movie is when edward g robinson recites all the different ways you can commit suicide and falling off the back of the train is not in any of his books that is a powerhouse scene might be one of my favorite scenes in all of cinema it's just great and uh i could go on forever but i'll just leave it there Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I would love to hear other people's comments about that. that. Definitely Walter Neff's motives is something that can definitely be unpacked. So I certainly have my thoughts, but I want to hear what other people uh, have to say. What do you think about Neff as a, as a character and his motives in this movie? Mindy, I saw your hand up next. Um, well, not to comment on the last comment, but um, I was just going back to wondering if Hannah knew it was this the first sort of major film that Stanwick was a blonde yeah yes um yeah she I mean her hair tone kind of varied from one movie to the next but yeah the wig is definitely something that people talk about in this movie it is very uh kind of overly stylized it's awkward it's like uh you know it's, it's over the top and it's fake. And I think that, you know, it was not, Billy Wilder knew what he was doing, I think. Cause he's, you know, Walter Neff is supposed to look at this woman who we see as being conniving and evil from the beginning. And he, he sees right past it and he, he jumps on board with her. And I think the obviousness of her blonde, you know, uh, you know, fakeness, I think is, is part of her character. But yeah, it's definitely, a statement. Edward? Oh, Edward, I think you're still on mute. Uh, this is one of my all-time favorite films, and, and I'm so lucky that I saw the uh, the announcement in, in the uh, uh, in, in the theater uh, uh, webpage, uh, the, the, the side of it that really intrigues me is the relationship between 
uh, Neff, uh, and Keys. And the, the fact that to me, it's, it's, it seems that, that Neff originally was, was totally against the idea of, of the murder. And I thought it was actually ridiculous given, given the, the, um, the, 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 you know, fanatical efficiency of, of Keys. And uh, by the way, I should I should mention that, that there are a number of other favorite scenes that I have. One is the scene of the uh, guy who tried to uh, to torch his truck and and how how uh, how Keyes deals with them. And the the other and probably my favorite in the film is is when uh, when Barbara Stanwyck comes in to to talk to the. Uh, uh, talk to the head of the company who had inherited the company, and he says, "Well, some people think that just because a man occupies a big office, he's, he must be an idiot." And then he he proves that he is so, and and uh, Keyes just delivers. I mean, how people were able to to write such dialogue. That's why I I, I love these classic films because you you see the brains that went into creating the dialogue. But to get back to 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 uh, to to Keys and Neff, there is this kind of uh, a bromance of a, a combination of fraternity and, and rivalry, and it, it seems that that uh, Neff was was uh, smarting under the the uh, the Keys's idea that sales was just inferior to the kind of detective work that he did, and why why couldn't you know why couldn't he come along and be his apprentice and take a take a pay cut? So I think I think his to me, the especially because the the, the film really begins with him dictating. Uh, to me, it's it's really the the story of uh, of this this uh, really complex workplace relationship between two guys, in which the the, the woman, of course, you know, plays a, a really key part as femme fatale. But but really, that that um, that material would not have been ignited if it hadn't been for this work relationship. Yes, Edward, first of all, thank you. I'm so glad you're joining us uh, for this conversation. I hope you'll be back for others. Um, and and do, I'm glad that you saw the announcement on the website too. I hope that, uh, that, that that works for many people. But I will say that the, um, the relationship between Keyes and Neff uh, was something that Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler really played up. It was not as played up in James M. Kane's original uh, story and Kane loved this movie. He thought that the movie did so much better with the material than the book did and that it elevated it. And part of that was that relationship. Another part that Wilder and Chandler added was this uh, this this um, technique of the dictaphone uh, being the um, way that the story is is uh, framed in flashback. They added Neff beginning by confessing. And uh, do and adding this narration. Um, narration, of course, would become a trope of film noir, but this was kind of where it began. And um, that relationship between Keys and Neff is, I agree, hundred percent, is the movie. It's how the movie begins, and it ha it's how it ends. This uh, a lot of people have commented um, that it, it's a father son relationship, and that the emotional. Um, the emotional heart of this story is the betrayal of the son to the father. Uh, and that that's what drives the whole story is that he's trying to, he, you're right. He's not, I mean, the comments about how Neff is not interested in murder. He is kind of interested in Phyllis, but he's really, really interested in gaming the system. He's really interested in seeing if he, in, in this idea that he can get, he, Walter Neff, nobody else can get away with it. And the only person who's able to maybe call him out is Keyes. So that dynamic is definitely much of the heart of this story. I see so many hands, I wanna hear other Thank people's you. thoughts, yeah. Next up is Polly. Uh, yeah, hi, there's so many things to talk about, but I'll <laughs> try to keep it short. Um, you, uh, I love the, first two scenes um, between the, the, the two set pieces in the house, those to me are like Brian was saying, another scene was one of his favorites. Those two are among my favorites in all the movies. In just great performances and great dialogue, including some really salacious, hilariously salacious dialogue that's sort of shocking even today. Yeah. And 
the fact they got it, you know, through the sensors is really funny. Um, but I think that there's like a also a power, a big power dynamic going on between Walter and Phyllis. Like he's the salesman, he's the aggressor in his mind, he's all cocky. Um, such a nuanced performance from uh, McMurray, which is really gets better the more you watch the movie. And for someone who grew up with him as like the father on My Three Sons, it's right. hard, hard to sort of square. Um, but yeah, so then it's just this power play dynamic and she's, he's the one commenting on her anklet and this and that. Um, and she's, well, do you, you know, and then there's, do you understand? Yes, I think I do. But he really gets the wind blown out of him when he realizes that she's playing him. So right. I think that's when he, that's a turning point for me, for him. I also wanted to see if you had, if there's time to talk about the gas chamber ending, but there may not yes. be time later. I can definitely comment on it briefly. There was an alternate ending shot um, for this movie that uh, you may know about that uh, where um, Neff goes to the gas chambers and Keyes watches him be executed uh, for this crime. And that's like a, it was shot and they had it, you know, there's, there was footage of it at one point. It's become kind of a holy grail uh, for, you know, the film noir fan uh, community, but all signs point to the idea that it does, that it was destroyed. Um, Wilder did not like it. He thought that uh, the emotional story ends when Neff is, you know, falling apart in front of Keys, and the implication being that he's not long for this world anyway, um, and that that was kind of where nobody needed anything beyond that. Um, but there was this other ending that uh, they shot and did not use. Which, by the way, I will say also that in the book, uh, Neff and Phyllis escape <laughs> on a boat. And then in like a double suicide pact, they like jump off and to be eaten by a shark. And so that, that ending was also kind of flawed to say the least, but yeah. I'll just throw one more comment. I, I've read that Wilder later said that the wig was a mistake, that he was kind of stuck with it, but I think it works beautifully. I mean, there's nothing crazier than that photo of them in the um, shopping together with her with the glasses on, so. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And I think that he, you know, he may have revisited, he may have rethought it later, but I think in, in the time, he, he was not regretting it while during the production. Alan? Oh, thank you, Chris. Um, um, I, I'm so glad we're talking about this movie. Like many people here tonight, I've seen this movie I don't know how many times and it never gets old. And it's always like the most fun movie imaginable about a sociopath. Yeah. And, and what's amazing about it is how, even though Phyllis in particular and Walter too are not likable, we're kind of with them as they descend into deeper, deeper like desperation and cheapness. And, and everything just makes sense and hangs together. The one place, and it's very small and it's at the end, but the one, the one thing that unravels a little for me, and I wonder if anybody would care to comment on this, although I'm not sure how much there is to say, but there's some intimation at the end that Phyllis's real romance, the place where she's real, is with Nino Zacchetti, who is dating her stepdaughter, Lola. And it's like, really? She's that? She's with this like cheap punk? Like they're the two? It just... I don't know, that's the one thing I'd say, okay, fine, you know. But uh, I just wondered if anyone had anything to say about, you know, him as a character and 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 Phyllis and him, really? Just, I don't see it. Anyone want to weigh in on the Phyllis Nino spinoff? Edward? Oh, you're, on, you. you're on mute again, Edward. Uh. I recall that at, at some point it was implied, and maybe, maybe I was just imagining this, but I recall at some point it was implied that that she was going to get rid of him next. That, it, that he was really kind of a means to an end in this in this chain of of husbands and lovers, and and that she was just going to go on on and on with it. But uh, 
there there was no uh, clearly no sequel to this film, so she didn't, <laughs> didn't get to do it. Yeah, yeah. I think I think the implication also that she's trying to destroy Lola's life as much as possible, and, uh, you know, turning him against her was part of that arrangement. And, and speaking of Lola, the scene where she talks about Phyllis being responsible for the death of her mother is absolutely chilling. I mean, it's just, you know, that's where we really see how nakedly selfish and vicious Phyllis is. She's, she's, and, and you're right about the scene in the novel where they're on the boat, and she's in that white makeup. It's like too creepy for Hollywood. Like they couldn't do that. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, Tom, you're up next. Um, okay, great, thank you. Uh, I, you know, two things. First of all, just while we're talking about the ending, the one thing in, that I, I just still am not sure of as many times as I've seen the film is why she didn't shoot Fred McMurray. I mean, she, I, I, she, was, she was depicted as so cold, so hard, so vicious, and yet at that key moment, having shot him once already, she just can't finish it. And I'm not, I've never, I've never, I'm not sure why. And I don't, I don't know why. Um, but, you know, it, it allows Fred McMurray's character, Neff, of course, to, to do the narrative, which, um, you know, they could have pulled the Sunset Boulevard and had him do it from, you know, post-mortem <laughs> narrative. But, but anyway, um, not, not, and that's not a complaint about the film. It's just kind of like, I just expect she's her character is so well drawn as so selfish and so vicious that I expected her to shoot him. Um, the other thing, though, that really struck me, and again, like most people, a lot of people here, I've seen this many times, and and really struck me as a key part of noir is smoking, the cigarettes, the cigars. I if you have to add up how many cigarettes. But they're very, very expressive, you know, when when he's confident, he's, you know, he's holding it one way. When he's starting to get nervous, he's holding it another. And then there's the final scene where he's laying there. What does he do? Pulls up this battered, beat up cigarette that he can't even light anymore. And, you know, I, I think that's an essential noir that keeps going on. Just just that. And and of course, Edward G. Robinson has the big cigars which gives him a, a certain gravitas and a certain uh, you know, uh, presence beyond that. I, I don't know why it struck me in watching it this time, but it, it just is, I guess, just because they were lighting up all the time. You don't see that in movies too much today, but it, but it was a very purposeful. It wasn't just doing something with their hands. It was very purposeful to the characters and how the characters were feeling and especially Fred McMurray's character. Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that up. Next time you watch this movie or any Billy Wilder movie for that matter, the little bits of business that they do, that the actors do with their props, he had such a genius for directing those moments. And of course, he had real pros working with those props. I mean, Barbara Stanwyck goes over and, you know, shifts something on the table and it's like, it means something, you know, but he really always, always did that, that little gesture where McMurray light, you know, flicks the match to light it, and then he can't do it in the last moment. I mean, all of that is so purposeful, um, but I'm glad you brought that up. Absolutely. Risa? Hear me? Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting because I didn't know that there were matches that you could just go like that and they light. That seemed very dangerous, actually, to have those kinds of matches without I mean, to strike them. Um, I wonder if you could say something about the actor who played her husband, Phyllis's husband. Yeah, I mean, his name was Tom Powers. He was a character actor in a lot of things and as, his biggest success came on the stage. Um, he had a long career, but he was not, in the movies, he was, there wasn't a role that really distinguished him beyond this one. This was kind of the role that he's most remembered for mm -hmm. in movies. Yeah. And the, and the girl who played... Um... Yeah, um, Lola, the girl who played Lola. Yeah, Jean Heather is her name. She, it, she also appeared in the movie I mentioned, Going My Way, the Bing Crosby musical that won all the Oscars that year. Um, those are kind of her two bigger, better known things. Really tragically, three years after this, she was in a car accident that disfigured her face. 
Um, and so her movie career ended. Her life didn't end, but her movie career, that was it for her. So very, very brief career, yeah. And Keith? You're on mute still, Keith. Sorry, I thought I'd click that. I have something to respond to both Tom and to Alan about the cigarettes. You know, that's a marker of romance in Hollywood movies, probably going back to the silent era. You know, think about the cigarettes in something like uh, Haven't Had Not or the other Bogart and Bacall films, which aren't film noir. But in this film, you've got McMurray lighting the cigar the most repeatedly of Robinson. And that kind of is a it's a sly marker of what the real romance is. Uh, but it's a competitive romance. It's like anything you can do, I can do better. And so I think one of the reasons that is, is lurking as a subtext of why after uh, the murders happened, uh, Walter loses interest in uh, uh, Mrs. Diedrich is that what he's really trying to do is beat Keys by not having the murder be uncovered. And in response to Alan about the Zucchetti plot, and I don't want to steal Hannah's ammo here, but um, I think the Zucchetti part is, plot is actually a red herring. And you know, if, if Walter just takes off for Mexicali, and doesn't bleed out while going through several dictaphone discs. Uh, uh, Keys is going to go after uh, Zucchetti as well as the dead woman, but the dead woman doesn't care, which will destroy Lola's romance. So he actually turns into a white knight at the end for Lola. That's the reason to do what he does. You know, and I think that is an injection into, that's a giant plot modification, I think, uh, on the original material. But Hannah probably knows best. No, yeah, no, I'm so glad you brought that up because that is, there, there, there's that one moment and that goes back to Tom's point too about why she can't shoot him. There, it, there are like these little glimpses maybe to get past the censors that these characters might have some redeeming quality maybe somewhere that, uh, you know, Walter Neff, if he disappears, of course, like nobody has any reason to suspect him. So it's gonna, you know, and he has set it up so that he, he knew he was going there to kill Phyllis. Nino was 15 minutes behind him and the police were behind Nino. And so all that he needed to do was leave the scene and Nino would be implicated in not just uh, the husband's death, but in Phyllis's death too. And he does get him off the scene and he gets him out of the picture so that you know he can clear him too. Absolutely, yeah. John? Such a great job introducing and uh, contextualizing this, Hannah. As always, it, you bring such great clarity to the, to the films and things that we haven't thought about. Um, I really like Keith's point about, uh, and I think Risa also mentioned with the matches and the lighting the cigars. There's so many nice touches, nice small touches in this movie. It's like people's favorite scenes, just little things that make the film just about perfect. The fact that he's flicking out and lighting Keyes' cigar all the time. And then that the relationship is uh, between Neff and Keyes. And then at the end as he's bleeding, you know, possibly to death, it's reversed and he can't light the match and Keyes lights Neff's. I mean, it's just a beautiful, bringing everything full circle and underlining, you know, what's happening emotionally in the film. Yeah, I also agree with someone made the point that uh, the fact that Phyllis, it, it's just about a perfect film. And when something is so well done, you kind of look for just the little things that aren't quite perfect is the fact that Phyllis doesn't shoot him a second time, that she has this, you know, second thoughts is uh, to me, the more I see the film, the more that is the only thing that really you know, stands out to me. Uh, and the one thing you mentioned briefly that I wanted to underline was the cinematography by John Seitz, which is so amazing, um, particularly the way that he lights the scenes, the fact that it's like virtuoso low-key lighting with uh, you know, no fill light behind it, but all lit with shadows and practically some of the scenes in 
in the residence are, are practically in the living room are practically black. It's, you know, it's like Godfather II almost in its levels. And it was really, we just accept that type of, and obviously German expressionism had that, but this is the cinematography of noir, um, just textbook uh, in the way that it's set up, the same way that, that the, Chan the Chandler dialogue is textbook uh, uh, script for a noir. It just, it just checks every box possible to make it an essential noir. And I think that's why Eddie Muller you know, has named it the essential, besides the fact that it set the whole noir uh, movement in motion. Uh, yeah. Uh, it, and one thing I put in, in, in uh, at the end here, you, you showed um, the postman always uh, rings twice that, that pulp uh, paperback. I have the pulp paperback <laughs> here. Of double indemnity, um, of double indemnity, which was uh, printed in a vintage copy printed in uh, 1950. Oh, that's it's, so amazing! It's also wow. a great, uh, you know, they don't they don't make paperbacks like this. They don't make paperbacks at all. That is so great! What a great collector's item. Yeah, I mean, your point about Seitz's cinematography bears so much. I mean, we could do a whole talk about that, but the. So many, so many tropes of film noir were really, in, in terms of the visual style of it, were, were virtually invented by this movie. And Seitz wanted to shoot it in what he called newsreel style. And he was going for what he, he called, you know, a really realistic look. Um, of course, we would think of it as very stylistic, but uh, he was going for something that was not uh, glossy and sugar-coated kind of Hollywood, you know, look. And he did all these crazy things. I mean, the the uh, he used like silver dust in the air to light it to give that effect of the waning sunlight in the room. Um, all that light through the Venetian blinds. I mean, that became so overused in noir, but really this is where it began. And the uh, you know the idea that they are always in shadows and always uh, even in sunny California. I mean, this is like also James M. Cain's whole thing is that like in these California, uh, you know, environments, also in Postman Always Rings Twice, the, in these sunny, you know, baking hot places, there's such a dark, uh, you know, underbelly, so to speak. And so that's where uh, this lighting kind of creates this world. And Barbara Stanwyck said that when she came onto the set, that it was half the work was done for her because it was all the mood uh, that they created. She said it was one big sensational mood on that set and that it was kind of impossible not to be like sucked into it because they just created such a such a style um, with that, especially in the house. Um, yeah, see, I, I know we have, we have a couple more minutes and I see some more hands, so yeah. Back to you, Brian. I just wanted to comment on why Phyllis doesn't shoot Neff a second time. Uh, Phyllis always has somebody else do who does her dirty work. She does kill the first wife in a very passive way of leaving a window open. She has Neff kill her husband and she's pretty much setting up Nino to kill Neff. That way she gets to keep the money and it seems like Nino, she would be able to control Nino much more. Because when she does shoot Neff the first time, she seems almost shocked that she did it. She just, you know, she's not used to getting her hands dirty and doing her own crime. I think that that's why she didn't point. shoot first, set, uh, shoot him dead. Plus, if she shot him a second time, we wouldn't have that great ending. Right. So. That's a wonderful, wonderful point. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And Edward, back to you. Well, uh, I was just going to mention one one technical side of this that has always intrigued me, and and that is that that it isn't clear that uh, the the way in which the husband was murdered wouldn't have been detected by a competent coroner, yeah. uh, and, and because there is a difference. There is I, I made a little study of this. There, there is a there is a uh, actually in other films too. There's something called coup and counter coup. So there there are ways to analyze uh, how somebody has been killed by blunt force 
and whether it was the result of falling or whether uh, somebody struck them. And uh, I think for the purpose of the film and for the purpose of the wonderful dialogue, I would not be pedantic and, and, and insist on it. And yet it is something, it's something that, that really uh, kind, of, kind of haunts me, just as, for example, the idea that diluted penicillin in the third man could have resulted in those terrible, terrible condition of those kids. And I, I actually, uh, when I was in publishing, one of my authors is a, a historian of medicine. We, we, we corresponded about this, and he actually said that that diluting penicillin actually could, could actually be a good idea, especially in circumstances like that. However, in the in the by the way, in the real case in the third man, it, the, the penicillin had been cut with toxic substances. So that was the basis of it. But anyway, if, if there's any medical person in, the, in, the, in this uh, audience who can enlighten me on that, I would appreciate it. I love it. I, I think it's all a matter of how the, how the director is able to sell it and we, we just roll with it in the movie. But yes, absolutely. Those are great points. Yeah. Sean? I just have uh, one objection to what you did say, uh, Hannah, in your introduction, and that you said that uh, Barbara Stranger may be one of the greatest uh, actresses of all time. She is the greatest actress fair, in Hollywood history. And talking about the death made me think of her, the, the way they filmed the murder with just focusing on her facial expression. And that is one of the most, that just shows what an amazing actress she was. It's like a Mona Lisa, just the barest smile and emotion comes across her face as the murder is being committed off camera. It's really just a testament to what a great, a reactive act actress she really was. Absolutely. Her, her range was incredible and so subtle and how she could inhabit these different characters and, and you almost don't know she's doing it. It's kind of like the Spencer Tracy effect. Um, yeah. But yeah. She is, she, I've never, never seen her in a role in which she wasn't totally believable, right. totally convincing. And she wasn't always in great movies. Uh, Absolutely. She, she was always, in a lot of always, movies. Yeah. always the best part of any movie she was in. Yeah. So Polly, yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, that reaction shot to the murder is, you know, you get this sense that she's getting a bit of a thrill out of it and it's just really creepy and, and but so well played at such a fine level. Um, I also wanted to point out, I don't like all of the minor actors in this, but it doesn't matter because the leads to me are so incredible, but I love to see, I think his name is Porter Hall. Yeah. Um, from a lot of my favorite sort of screwball comedies, yeah, yeah, yeah. Preston Sturgis, the guy from Oregon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> don't, don't, he won't let you forget it, right? Yeah. He's, oh yeah, he's great. And uh, if you were with us way back when we talked about the Thin Man, he's the lawyer who I'm sure you've seen the Thin Man by now, but he's a big character in that one, yeah. Um, I know we're coming up on the hour and I, I wanna be respectful of everyone's time, but I would love to know, and maybe in the chat, other noirs that you would love to talk more about since we're in noir territory. Um, we do have the next couple movies picked out, but uh, definitely there are, there are future, future plans, so. Um, and yes, Alan, I do hope everyone will be back for the shop around the corner. Really a wonderful, wonderful, heartwarming movie. The antithesis of double indemnity, if you will. <laughs> a good antidote to this. Um, but yeah, if you have a favorite film noir um, and you want to put it in the chat or, or shout it out. Out of the past. Or getting some recommendations. Say it again, John. Out of the past. Out of the past. Great. I, I'm, I'm watching the chat if you want to put some in here. Um, there are some great ones. Actually, right now on TCM, and I, I will forgive you if you duck out right now to uh, go watch it. There's a, one, of the, one of these great underrated, uh, it's called Where the Sidewalk Ends, starring Dana Andrews. It's a really wonderful uh, film noir. It's Dana Andrews Month on Turner Classic Movies uh, every Tuesday. Uh, you'll see some of his films. Um, great. And Noir Alley, of course, is, is the weekly feature on, on Turner Classic Movies, uh, Saturdays at midnight, and then it reprises um, Sunday mornings 
Um, Eddie Muller hosts a different noir uh, film every week. These are excellent, excellent recommendations. As they pour in, I just want to remind you, so next month, uh, August 16th, we'll be talking about Born Yesterday for another masterclass in female acting. Um, I hope you'll join us for that one. Thank you all so much for being here tonight. Thank you, Hannah, and thank you, everyone. And again, yeah, two classics in August, uh, Shop Around the Corner on the 2nd, Born Yesterday on the 16th. So we'll hope to see you back for both of those. And they will be in the theaters too. So definitely check to see what times uh, you'll get to see them on the big screen. Great, thank you, everybody. Thank you.